Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. So glad you've joined us and let us letting us be part of your day. We appreciate that. We have lots to talk about today, including more on the markets with Arlen Suderman with Stone X. Reaction to Michael Regan's confirmation hearing yesterday. The incoming EPA administrator uh, had a lot to say about renewable fuels, and we'll talk with Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs with the National Biodiesel Board, for his reaction to those comments. We'll talk infrastructure with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition, and uh, some of the things that uh, he thinks uh, need to be focused on as we move forward with infrastructure and whether or not we can get anything done in Congress as far as an infrastructure package this time. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But let's focus first on the confirmation hearings this week of both Tom Vilsack and Michael Regan. Joining us now from AgriPulse Communications is Phil Brasher. Phil, thank you for joining us. Both hearings went uh, pretty smoothly uh, as expected. I don't think anything really controversial, no big bombshells, I don't think were were dropped during the hearings. Uh, what has been the reaction overall so far to both Tom Vilsack and Michael Regan? Well, I think the uh, reaction, uh, certainly in the ag sector, is fairly uh, positive. Uh, I think uh, these these two men are both uh, viewed as uh, about the best uh, um uh, farm groups could uh, hope for uh, with uh, with, a, with a democratic administration, uh, a lot of uh, uh, progressive outlook on a, on a lot of uh, a lot of issues. Uh, Vilsack obviously is very well known to to ag uh, and has been uh, you know involved with the dairy industry for the last four years, so he's uh, very much been on that side of things. And then uh, Michael Regan, uh, the uh, nominee for EPA has uh, been very uh, uh, has really reached out I think to ag groups uh, and has promised and he did this again in his uh, hearing, hearing yesterday he promised over and over to listen and to uh, to be as transparent as possible on uh, issues uh, relevant to agriculture let's take a look at some of the more controversial issues that each will be dealing with we'll start with Michael Regan EPA uh, one of those will be um, waters of the U.S. And he didn't say they were going to change it, but he didn't say they they weren't going to change it either. Uh, yeah, and it's hard to believe like what they're well, just things is you know, the status quo. Um, you know, to, 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 for listeners, of course, the Trump, the Obama administration put out the waters of the U.S. rule. Uh, it was uh, blocked in many states by the courts. Trump administration repealed it, replaced it with a less expansive rule. Uh, that's been uh, you know, tied up in the courts. Uh, Biden administration is probably not going to defend that. So, uh, it, you know, you'd think they would have to do something. Now, what Regan said was uh, he said a couple of things. One, they would be transparent, and I think most importantly, it's what Ag wanted to hear is that uh, the farm groups would uh, have a seat at the table. Uh, that was a, he, it was a theme that he repeated over and over. 
So he was going to listen to input. He didn't say where the administration, as you point out, he didn't say where they would go ultimately. I think most people expect that they will push to change the waters of the U.S. rule once again. Now for uh, Tom Vilsack, he left the door open on country of origin labeling, which is certainly a controversial issue. He did with a big caveat. He said, if you could come up, if you could only come up with something that the WTO uh, would approve of, uh, that wouldn't run afoul of uh, their rules and therefore uh, allow Canada and Mexico to retaliate. That's, uh, that's a big, big open question. They obviously tried in the Obama administration, finally, uh, uh, Congress acted to to repeal it, the mandatory country of origin labeling when uh, when uh, when that retaliation was imminent. So we'll see. Now, uh, uh, but big yeah, we'll see. Yeah. So he, he he gave himself some wiggle room there. That's for sure. Now on uh, yeah. renewable fuels, uh, Tom Vilsack came out as he has in the past, uh, very strongly in support of biofuels. Uh, Michael Regan, when asked about uh, the RFS and, of course, uh, the small refinery exemptions, he, uh, you know, he again pledged uh, to be open and and look at both sides and review this. Uh, I mean, that's going to be, he's going to have a big stack of things on his desk, Michael Regan will. Right up near the top will be the small refinery exemptions and RFS issues. Yeah, but... uh... Trump administration left a lot of that uh, uh, on his desk, <laughs> so it was it was sitting right on top of every everything else. Uh, yeah, and so much of that's going to wind up in the courts. It's uh, it, no matter what he does, uh, it's just inevitable. Uh, either uh, either the biofuel industry or the uh, uh, refiners uh, will you know take take to court whatever whichever way he goes on that. He kept promising. To, to be transparent um, about their decisions on that, didn't telegraph, didn't telegraph what they would be, um, but uh, one would presume they will not be as favorable to refiners as the um, Trump administration sometimes was. So we'll see how that plays out, but uh, seemingly both are going to be confirmed um, rather easily, right, when the vote comes? I saw no evidence of uh, dissension, um, and, and again, I think uh, for a lot of folks that are looking at uh, looking at uh, Vilsack and looking at Regan and saying, you know, these are these are these are folks we can work with. Uh, they understand us. Uh, Regan has a record as a state regulator in North Carolina. The pork producers uh, uh, are very complimentary of. Uh, of his work there, so I I think there's a lot a lot of support for both of them. Yep, we will see, uh, and then and then when they get into office and start making decisions, then we'll see how smooth the ride is. Right, <laughs> that's when you start hitting the bumpy water. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yep, and that's and coming, they, uh, Phil. They should be in office fairly soon. That's right, Phil. Good to talk with you. Thanks a lot. Right, thank you. Phil Brasher with AgriPulse Communications. So, yeah, uh, seemingly for the most part, both nominees uh, saying the right things and uh, should be confirmed uh, soon. Then they'll get into office, both Tom Vilsack and uh, Michael Regan. It'll be interesting on the uh, renewable fuels uh, issue because uh, 
Tom Vilsack uh, has been a strong supporter of biofuels in the past. Secretaries of Agriculture tend to be very supportive of, of biofuels. Uh, EPA administrators, not always the case. And sometimes they play that good cop, bad cop thing uh, when these issues come up uh, within an administration. We'll see how this plays out. Hopefully uh, we'll uh, get some uh, strong action on that. Uh, but it's going to be a, going to be tough. The Trump administration tried to walk the line between oil and biofuels. Didn't work very well. We'll see the, what approach Michael Regan and this administration takes. Coming up next, infrastructure. Will we get something done in this Congress on infrastructure? We're going to talk about it with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. That's next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Ron Lamberty, Senior Vice President for the American Coalition for Ethanol. What's the message here you're trying to get out to uh, retailers about offering E15 to motorists? a couple of rounds of uh, funding from the U.S. Department of Agriculture for infrastructure is that most of those stations that did not receive any money from these HBIP grant programs should know that they can probably use their existing equipment to sell E15. And that's very different from the message that they've been fed from the oil industry and even from regulators over the last several years. The most recent thing that happened is just at the end of the last administration, they issued a proposed rule to change the labeling requirements and compatibility requirements for offering E15. There's good stuff in there and there's some stuff that probably doesn't need to be in there, but it's a 90-day comment period and we want to make sure the retailers take a look at those things and tell us what needs to be in there that isn't and what's in there that doesn't need to be. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. What kitchen gadget is so essential to food safety that no home should be without it? I'm registered dietitian nutritionist Toby Smithson. A food thermometer isn't just for meat and poultry. It will help you avoid food poisoning from egg dishes, casseroles, and leftovers by ensuring they're fully cooked by reaching a safe minimum internal temperature. Heat leftovers and casseroles to at least 165 degrees and egg dishes to at least 160 degrees. You'll find more food safety tips at homefoodsafety.org. I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security. Beware of telephone scammers pretending to be government employees. Real Social Security employees will never threaten you. Call is threatening you with arrest or other legal action and demanding money are not from us. If you receive a call like this, hang up, do not provide them with any form of payment or information. Report the call at oig.ssa.gov. Sometimes life is wonderful, and sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private healthcare is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready, and health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is 35000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612. 
800-664-2612. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And we're joined now by Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, I I think we could go back and pull a recording of a conversation we had four years ago uh, when there was a new administration, and I was asking you, do you think we'll get a comprehensive infrastructure package? It sure seemed like that was a good opportunity four years ago, and it just didn't happen. So we'll we'll start off again there. Here we have a new Congress, a new administration. Do you think this time we'll see an infrastructure package passed? I think there's a very good chance, and and they, there's a the 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 scuttlebutt is that the they will use the budget reconciliation process to achieve it, which means that you can pass it with a simple majority vote, and and so I I think there's some momentum behind it. Um, yeah. You know, I obviously anything can happen, but uh, I think there's a, a very good chance that you'll see something something comprehensive. You know, which for someone who is involved in infrastructure, that's that's good news. But you know, on the, the I think there's just a, a cautionary word to that that needs to be emphasized that you know, you ha- you have to be able to make sure that these things are wise investments. Um, no one wants to see just waste and just throwing money at the problem. It has to be strategic. And, and, and from our perspective, you have to make sure that you're attending to the needs of rural America as well, not just fixating on urban America and doing things like subways and passenger rail and freeways. Those things you can certainly argue for, but we also have to focus on rural America as well. That's a good point. Earlier this week, we talked with Todd Van Hoos, president and CEO of the Farm Credit Council. He talked about pushing for a carve-out for rural America to make sure uh, rural America did not get left out in any type of funding for uh, an infrastructure package. I think there's certainly, I don't know what the magic number is, but, but that is something that we emphasize as well, is making sure that whatever you do that you are attending to those needs. It's, it's easy just to, to focus on, you know, the, the high traffic volume areas. But, you know, the reality is a lot of the intense high traffic volume roads that we see, freeways, interstates, highways, et cetera, a lot of that traffic originated on a rural road. And so it, it just seems like that it, wouldn't, it would be, wouldn't be prudent to say, well, let's just focus exclusively on those high-traffic corridors when the reality is what feeds into them, um, you know, it's kind of like streams feeding into a larger river. Well, you wouldn't just focus on the large river. We also need to focus on the streams that feed into it as well. And so that's something that we, we continually try to express and, and emphasize. You've got to have that balanced approach. We're talking with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. And then, Mike, there are many layers to infrastructure, roads and bridges, uh, locks and dams. Uh, It also gets into broadband. I mean, there's so many different things. So when we say comprehensive package, do you think they come up with something that addresses across the board, or how do you see this playing out? I I could see them you know, certainly doing that, and I think you know you're, there's a lot of momentum that appears behind rural broadband. Um, I, I I 
I think there's a good chance to see something pretty comprehensive. You know, one of the things that, you know, the Democratic Party uh, acknowledges is that they need to do a better job of appealing to rural areas. And, and I, and I, I agree with that sentiment. And I think one of the best ways of doing that is to make sure that you're, when you, when you develop an infrastructure package, you're, you're also talking about rural roads and bridges. You're talking about the inland waterway system with locks and dams. You're talking about ports. You know, a lot of those things that are really instrumental for agricultural products finding its way to a domestic or international customer. In rural America, do you see one of those areas as uh, a higher priority than others? It, it really is, you know, all of the above is the easy answer, but it, it really is true. You know, when you think about the journey of soybeans or corn or whatever the commodity may be, um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say, well, we need to put all of our eggs in the rural roads and bridges basket because the reality is it, it is a logistics chain. I think that's, a, that's always a healthy metaphor to keep in mind. You're only as strong as your weakest link. That, you know, the, the, the analogy that I routinely provide is it doesn't do a whole lot of good if all of the links in your chain are stainless steel if one of those links in the chain is, is, a, tw- is, is a twisty tie. Um, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So you really do have to have all of the above. Soybeans get and corn and other commodities get handed off from one to the other, and you really need to make sure each one of those is well-equipped to, to accommodate that volume. All right, so it's a, it's a big lift. Obviously, the need is there. It seems that there is bipartisan support there, but we have seen this before. It, it usually gets bogged down in the details and perhaps in in the funding how do we avoid those uh, same uh, problems this time around and obstacles to getting this done well you know i i, I think you, one of the reasons why i'm optimistic is that and it's it's part of you know the one side of the coin is that it's it's encouraging the other side of the coin it's discouraging is that there there is quite a bit of movement right now on spending money with, with very little fiscal restraint. And, you know, the good news is that we could see, you know, infrastructure getting done and getting built. And that's something that we should celebrate. But, you know, some of the things that has always provided a governor or a constriction on some of these projects, you know, fiscal discipline, um, that those that's not a very popular sentiment right now, uh, whether from Republicans or Democrats. And so, you know, the whole question of this, how do we pay for it? People are asking that, but not to the same degrees you've seen in the past. And so, um, and with this, you know, push and rightfully so to respond appropriately to the downturn in the economy due to COVID, um, there is a lot of additional attention toward infrastructure as a way to help stimulate the economy. And there's, that does make sense. So I, I do think some of these barriers are less intense than what they normally would be. So that, that, that would suggest to me that I think there's a decent chance of getting an infrastructure package passed. And, and given the fact that it doesn't have to be bipartisan, uh, things are going to be proceeding along party lines. Um, you know, I think that does provide a, certainly a, a likelihood that you'll see something pass with infrastructure. We just want that to make sure it's actually a good package. Okay, so there are a lot of areas, as we, we talked about, that need to be addressed. I want to focus on one before we run out of time. Rural bridges. 
What's your biggest concern there? What's the biggest need there, you think? Well, you know, certainly we, we, we advocate for increased funding, but, you know, a, a reason we uh, recently uh, disseminated a, a new report uh, called the Top 20 Innovations for Rural Bridge Replacement and Repair is that the, the area of the country in which the, the condition of rural bridges is most severe also happens to be the area of the country in which resources are the most scarce or on the decline, and that's rural America. And so that is the dilemma facing rural Americans. So the, the response is, do you just close these bridges or lo- load restrict them? Do you hope for money to come elsewhere from the federal government or the state government or local government? Maybe you'll get some, but not sufficiently. Or do you also try to find ways to stretch the taxpayer dollar further to get more bang for your buck? And so that was really the impetus behind this study is to really highlight a number of innovative concepts that can provide significant cost savings without sacrificing safety. These are all validated from an engineering perspective. But yet, for some reason, they're not being widely implemented throughout rural America. And we think farmers can really play a meaningful role in helping increase that awareness of these concepts and increase motivation to employ them, being able to replace a bridge for $100,000 versus $400,000. I don't know a single county that wouldn't embrace embrace that kind of savings. And so, but we just need to see it more widespread throughout rural America. All right. So maybe, Mike, the time is finally here, and perhaps we'll soon be talking about what's getting done on infrastructure instead of what we're trying to get done or hoping to get done. Uh, we'll, I know there are some things happening, but maybe more will get done now in a more comprehensive uh, uh, approach. We'll hope so. Mike, thanks a lot. We'll stay in touch. Thank you, Mike. Always, always a pleasure. Thank you. Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Yeah, maybe this will be the time we get this package. But, of course, uh, the key will be the details. Uh, where is it going to be spent? How much is going to be spent? Where that money comes from? Those are the big issues, and we'll see what uh, what they can come up with if they can get focused on something like that. We'll talk uh, a little bit more coming up uh, later in the program about the confirmation hearings this week for Tom Vilsack and Michael Regan. We'll talk with Kurt Kovarik with the National Biodiesel Board. That's coming up. But next, we're going to talk markets with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for StoneX. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Every Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Adams on Agriculture. Conversations with policymakers, the movers and shakers in the ag industry. The pros and cons of issues important to you, cutting through the spin to get to the heart of the topic and giving you the information you need to know. Every weekday, Mike Adams brings you a guest important to the ag industry. 
It's quite simply information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. Row crops are trading on neither side of unchanged on the Board of Trade. Expectations that next Tuesday's WASDE report is likely to see a rise in not only exports but possibly feed and ethanol usage and expectations for a record large export sales number for last week have brought buyers back in. Also supporting corn is the delayed second crop planting in Brazil, which is sure to delay harvest. On the Board of Trade, March corn trading a half a cent higher at 5.52 and a half cent, the May contract down a penny at 5.48. For soybeans, the March contract up four and a half cent at 13.75 and three quarters. The May contract up two and three quarters at 13.70 and a fraction. For the wheats, Chicago wheat March down six cents at 6.42 and a half cent. Kansas City wheat March down two and a half cent at 6.23. Minneapolis spring wheat March up three quarters at 6.25 and three quarters. The May contract up two and a fraction at 637. Cattle futures tried to push higher yesterday but just could not capitalize on the strength of hogs. Cash cattle have not yet been traded today, leaving traders a little on edge even though most anticipate higher prices. Strong cash for hogs provides an incentive for traders to continue to buy and hold. Looking at the Board of Trade, April lean hogs trading 45 cents higher at 79.65, the May contract up 30 at 83.07. For feeders, the March contract down 22 at 138.30. April down 27 at 141.55. April live cattle down 12 at 122.32. The June contract down 10 at 119.37. In the outside markets, the Dow is up 252 points. The Nasdaq composite up 49. The S&P 500 up 21. Crude oil in New York is up 16 cents at 55.85 per barrel. The U.S. dollar is trending higher. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. For the American Ag Network, I'm Kirsten Rall. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, let's talk markets with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for Stone X. Arlen, good to talk with you again. Let's look ahead to next week's WASDE report. What are you expecting? 
Well, I think the trade is expecting, and I am too, but not to the same extent, the trade is expecting the big corn sales to be factored in with much larger export sales to China for the current year. I think USDA rightfully should be a little bit more conservative, considering the nature of, of last week's announcements looking more political than anything else, and should uh, be, con you know, make some increases in export sales, but not go as high as what some of the estimates are out there. Overall, when we look at China's behavior, it tends to make bundled announcements like this when it wants to make a political statement and sometimes has held off maybe 50% of those big announcements to be shipped in the following year. So we need to be careful there. But bottom line is corn stocks get tighter. Uh, I'm looking for something closer to 1.4 billion bushels. Some in the trade are looking for 1.1 billion uh, bushels overall. Anything below 1.5 is really considered to be tight, and, and so that's what the market's factoring in there. On soybeans, with a harvest in Brazil dramatically delayed due to weather this year, due to weather at planting and at harvest, we are seeing China have to come for more U.S. soybeans. And uh, that is further tightening up supplies. I'm still holding with expectations that we're going to see a record low 2.5% stocks-to-use ratio. That's around 115 million bushels. Uh, USDA is currently uh, uh, looking at maybe 140 million. I think they continue to tighten that up. That means that the pipeline is going to be extremely tight, and I think we're very possibly looking at some areas of the Midwest this summer struggling to find soybeans to crush to keep our livestock producers in soy supplied with soy meal. And, and that's a real concern going forward. We'll be importing soybeans likely from Brazil, but that won't be a large volume because of logistics and currency exchange rates. So overall, we're looking at corn and soybeans continuing to tighten up. It's just will it be more than what the market's already factoring in or not? What are your people in China telling you about where Ch they are at? Where is China at in its recovery from African swine fever and rebuilding their herd? Yeah, excellent question. Um, depending on which government report you look at, their production is anywhere from a down 3% to down 10% from pre-ASF levels. We believe it's close to down 20% yet at this point. So it still has some more to go. That's very impressive in what it's done. Now, the reason I'm sure you brought this up is because it reports some more ASF once again. And I discussed this this week with our team in, in China and uh, asked them. And, and it literally looks like we may be dealing with another strain that was created by an illegal vaccine where they took the previous ASF uh, uh, virus and removed a couple of genes or so from it and tried to create a vaccine out of that and actually created another disease, a related disease. And I asked our team, do you, what's the risk here that we could see uh, another major outbreak that would uh, create a lot of demand destruction for soybeans, corn, etc. They said, we think that risk is very low at this point because of the big commercialization that we've seen in the industry. Prior to ASF, really most of the industry was these small farms with a few hogs on their farm, just, you know, millions of them. And now it's mostly, not all, but mostly these big commercialized farms with tens of thousands of hogs on them, just unbelievable multi-story structures, et cetera, with very strong biosecurity. 
And yes, if the disease gets into one of those, it kills a lot of hogs, but that's still a small fraction of the overall industry, and it's going to be hard to get into those facilities with their biosecurity. It can still hit uh, some of the smaller farms, and that's basically what we're hearing at this point. Um, but again, that doesn't create as big a problem as what we saw with ASF starting back in August of 2018 and really peaking in 2019. Talking with Arlen Suderman with Stone X. So let's go back to some things you've just said here and pointed out. I mean, we're, we're happy, we're excited about selling to China, and especially when we're focused on soybeans, their big purchases, helping drive up our prices. But are, have we created a scenario, did you just describe a scenario where we're, we're selling, selling, selling our soybeans to help feed China to a point where we're gonna, we have to buy from Brazil to feed our own hogs? Yeah, yeah, and Brazil was buying from us to, to feed their livestock, and now we're going to flip it the other way. Not in great volumes, but to some extent. But, yeah, the demand for China, as I've talked to our Shanghai team, I said, and I've run over the numbers with them, I said it looks to me like USDA is really being conservative on its demand estimates for soybeans for the current year. That's where the risk is, is that those numbers will actually be higher. And they said, oh, we fully agree with that. And uh, again, it goes back, as we've mentioned before, to the elimination of food waste as a ration item. We just in the West have trouble comprehending how big of an industry it was to gather food waste from restaurants and distribute it to these hog farms, all these family hog farms that were built around the towns so they could feed the food waste. That was a massive part, part of the feeding of hogs in China. That's been eliminated. So as they rebuild now, we're just seeing exponential growth in demand for soybeans and for feed grains. So let's go to South America. You talked about the delay in their harvest, the, the delay they had in planting, the delay they're having in harvesting. Uh, what is? Do we have an idea how this could impact that safrina corn crop down there? Yeah, as we look at safrina corn planting as of this last weekend, it was about 2% planted versus 22% a year ago. So that's a significant difference because of, of the lateness of the soybean harvest and because now um, now they're actually dealing with excess of water and rainfall in many of these areas where they grow the safrina corn crop. So if they can get the crop planted, they'll have good moisture for getting it established. Um, but the problem is now getting the soybeans harvested while it's raining and then getting the corn planted. I think they're overall going to do it, but it's, again, going to be late. I think we're going to stretch this corn planting into early March, and for maximizing yields, they really like to have it planted by the final week of February. Um, so that still increases risk. It doesn't guarantee a short safrina crop. It just increases the risks and means you have to have the wet season last longer well into the month of May. And so as we look at right now the long-range outlooks, you know, for, you know, confidence is obviously going to be low that far out. But right now we're looking at below normal rainfall for March and April. And the wet season typically ends sometime in mid-April. Well, below normal, as we saw with the soybean crop, is in tropical Brazil can still mean enough rain if it's distributed well. Um, but that does mean it's highly unlikely that we're going to be extending the wet season in, you know, into the month of May. 
So I would say the risks are high, although we are looking for with the high profitability of corn and soybeans now in Brazil because of currency exchange rates and these high prices, we're looking at probably an 8.5% increase in area planted to safrina corn this year. But overall what I'm hearing is maybe we don't necessarily, although we might keep pushing higher, uh, we're, there's still support for pretty strong prices for some time to come here. Yeah, there is. If I look at my balance sheet for soybeans over the next year, I'm talking about for the 21-22 marketing year, if I get soybean acres up around 92.5 million, that's not a forecast. I'm right now looking for 90.5. But if I undershoot it by 2 million and we get to 92.5, and if we have a really good growing season and get a 52 bushel yield, then I get ending stocks back up into the 200 million bushel range between two and 300 million bushels depending on how things finally come out and we get a little breathing room that's still considered very snug overall not much room for error uh, and the more likely scenario that we're at 90 and a half million and we get a trend yield uh, closer to 50 million, just under 50 million bushels, 49.8 or so, then we're still having to ration demand over the coming year. Um, and so we'll be extremely tight. On the corn side, it's a little bit easier to f see a scenario where we could get stocks back above 2 billion bushels next year, but it's also easier to see a scenario where we could get stocks down to around 800 million bushels, which would obviously be extremely tight. So we could still go either way in the 21-22 marketing year with corn, but we've got a lot of nervousness between now and then um, to see how uh, La Nina plays out. I've seen this morning outlooks for the Midwest summer that are hot and dry, and I've seen those that are mild and wet. So what that says is we really don't know yet. There's arguments we made for both, and that means the market's going to be nervous for some time. And keep in mind, we're still planting the, the corn crop in Brazil, and so there's a long growing season ahead yet to see what we end up with there, if it's going to be short or going to be a good crop. Yeah, but for the first time in a long time, we can say even if we have a big crop here, we're not as worried about adding to burdensome stock levels. We're still talking about uh, stock levels that uh, you know are fairly tight, as you mentioned. So that's a big change from what we've seen in the last several years. Arlen, always good to talk with you. Thank you very much. You bet. What a difference demand makes. It sure does. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for StoneX. Up next, reaction from the National Biodiesel Board to the confirmation hearings this week of Michael Regan for EPA Administrator and Tom Vilsack for USDA Secretary. Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board, joins us next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Do you know how to keep food safe at home? Clean, separate, cook, and chill. The easy lessons of clean, separate, cook, and chill will help you protect your family and be food safe. Let's talk about how to really cook. First, you can't tell it's done by how it looks. Use a food thermometer. Then, always stir, rotate the dish, and cover food when microwaving to prevent cold spots where bacteria can survive. Fast cooking should still be safe cooking. 
and bring sauces, soups, and gravies to a rolling boil when reheating. Even for the most experienced cooks, the improper heating and preparation of food means bacteria can survive. Food safety risks at home are more common than most people think. The USDA is your partner in being food safe. Clean, separate, cook, and chill. For more information, visit BeFoodSafe.gov or call 1-888-MP-HOTLINE. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Then call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 immediately. That's 800-955-4538. Page Publishing is looking for authors of all types of books. And unlike most publishers, Page Publishing will take the time to review each and every book submitted to them and give you their feedback. If they like what they read, they'll get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Amazon, the Apple iTunes Store, Barnes & Noble, and other outlets. They handle everything. Editing, cover design, copyright protection, printing, publicity, and distribution. So if you've written a novel, children's book, cookbook, inspirational work, poetry, or a biography and want to get it published, then you need to call Page Publishing and do it immediately. Call 800-955-4538 now for your free author submission kit. Again, for your free author submission kit, call 800-955-4538. That's 800-955-4538. Your road to fame and fortune could very well start with this simple phone call. Call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 for your free author submission kit. Recently on Adams on Agriculture. Always good to talk with the CEO of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, Colin Woodall. There are still voices out there calling for country of origin labeling. And do you think that's going to become a big issue again? There's no doubt about it. What we continue to push for is the recognition that there are better opportunities to showcase our product, and we can do that through voluntary means. There's quite a few programs that are regional or state-based in nature. One that has been extremely successful is the Kentucky product program that's going on there, where they have worked with Kroger stores in Kentucky to have a branded program, Kentucky Beef. And that voluntary approach, we think, has more connection to that consumer than just a, a blanket government government-run country of origin labeling program. We're against mandatory government labeling in regards to country of origin, but we believe that those value-added labeling programs that show some sort of origin do have value. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture prides itself on bringing top leaders in the egg industry right to your radio speakers. AOA wants to continue that conversation right to your fingertips. Follow AOA on Twitter at AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams himself at the handle Mike Adams Egg. You will receive real-time highlights of the show and keep up with which convention or industry meeting AOA is attending. That's AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams Egg. We hope to see you online. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. 
Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. EPA Administrator nominee Michael Regan appeared before a Senate committee yesterday for his uh, confirmation process, and uh, he said the renewable fuel standard is definitely a priority for this administration and committed to a thorough review of all decisions made under the umbrella of the RFS. Let's talk about it with Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Kurt, thanks for joining us. Well, what did you think of the comments yesterday on uh, biofuels by Michael Regan? Yeah, Mike, glad to be with you. Well, uh, I, I view them as being uh, cautiously optimistic. Um, he mentioned concerns uh, surrounding all of the items that are going to be on his desk uh, related to the renewable fuels program that, that were mismanaged or uh, left to linger by the previous administration. I think the positive takeaways are, as you said, that he expressed that the RFS is a top priority of the administration. He wants to provide additional uh, transparency in the program in terms of how they uh, grant small refiner exemptions. And then uh, in addition, he indicated uh, that they want to return to making decisions on the RFS uh, according to the law, which is refreshing uh, given what we've seen over the past handful of years in terms of administering uh, the statute kind of based on, uh, you know, interest groups and, and, uh, and uh, handouts to, to refining uh, industry. So I, th- I view it optimistic, but I'll, I'll say with, you know, a little bit of a caveat, these are a lot of the same commitments that we heard from previous administrators about adhering to the law and being transparent. Now, under the previous EPA, Administrator Wheeler did move to make, uh, you know, something more items transparent with respect to their dashboard on when they're uh, granting small refiner exemptions, what that means in terms of gallons, et cetera. So I, I'll, I'll say it again. I, I'm cautiously optimistic. I know that he is somebody that will have an open door. He's got a track record of um, meeting with industry stakeholders and, and interested policymakers. So that is very positive that we'll have that opportunity to make our case. Uh, so I, I look at it as, as a good start. I'm, I'm, I'm eager to get to know him, eager to uh, work with his staff and impress upon them the importance of the renewable fuel standards, the biomass-based diesel industry. Well, there's a lot of focus, obviously, on climate issues, and there's been a lot of focus on moving to electric vehicles and things like that. But uh, President Biden has repeatedly mentioned the role of biofuels and advanced biofuels in uh, in dealing with climate change. We've heard that from Tom Vilsack. That has to uh, at least give you some hope that they'll follow through on that. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I was would have mentioned that the, the uh, Secretary Vilsack's confirmation hearing was a day before uh, Regan's. Very, very positive for biofuels, both in terms of uh, recognizing the ag industry's role in addressing carbon, as well as the priority that he intends to place on biofuels being at the table uh, and being part of the solution, both you know in terms of conventional ethanol, the volumes driven there, as well as advanced biofuels, the opportunities in uh, sustainable aviation fuels, maritime. He he stated clearly that you know regardless of the drive towards electric vehicles biofuels are going to be here for a very long time the internal combustion engine is not going away overnight and there's going to be a role for biofuels to play uh well out into the future well the small refinery exemption issue i would think would be pretty near the top of the uh of the stack of items on his desk when he comes into epa not only um, how he will deal with this issue moving forward, but how he's going to deal with those uh, requests that are already on his desk. That's right. I, there, there's a lot of matters before him. He, he, he cautiously stated that he had to get on top of the litigation surrounding those small refiner exemptions, which is prudent. Um, it's, it's being litigated in a handful of different courts, uh, including the Supreme Court. What is, what is somewhat uh, curious is that there were advocates on the, on the committee yesterday on behalf of refiners saying that no no decisions and no action should be taken on small refiner exemptions until the Supreme Court has had its say on this issue, which I'm pretty sure are the same interests and the same advocates who, uh, in the waning hours of the Trump administration, were lobbying uh, EPA to grant as many small refiner exemptions as they could on the way out. So while they were hopeful to get action on uh, these waivers prior to January 20th, now they're expressing that there should be caution and patience uh, to wait to see what uh, the courts do. The fact of the matter is, you know, everyone can recognize that what the previous administration did, particularly under Administrator Pruitt, was a freewheeling style of, of uh, granting small refiner exemptions to anyone who applied for them. I, I don't think there's any doubt in anybody's mind, and I would imagine the refiners would say the same thing, that under this administration, we're going to see very, very few, much fewer uh, small refiners exemptions granted which is positive so our, our our goal on this is to see that they're used uh significantly less and then any exemptions that are granted that those gallons be made up so that biodiesel uh producers aren't the ones taking the brunt of those of those waivers that those gallons are still blended in the marketplace i'm optimistic that through the advocacy of of secretary vilsack and the commitments made by uh mr regan yesterday that they're going to be honest brokers in this. They're going to do what they can to right the, the, the ship, so to speak, in terms of implementation of the RFS. And that, uh, you know, hopefully we'll see better days ahead in terms of administration of this uh, critically important program. That's Kurt Kervarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board, reacting to testimony of Michael Regan for the EPA administrator position and Tom Vilsack as Ag Secretary, and focusing on their comments concerning biofuels. Coming up on tomorrow's program, we're going to get more reaction from the Ag community to those two hearings this week. A lot of uh, uh, important topics were discussed. Trade, certainly. Uh, waters of the U.S. been talked about. Uh, country of origin labeling. Uh, so many very important issues. And what we can learn from these hearings 
no real bombshells or anything new or con all that controversial said, but what indication do those hearings and those comments by those two uh, give us as far as a look to the future, what we might expect from USDA and EPA moving forward? We'll talk about that with uh, the ag community coming up tomorrow. Hope you'll join us right here on Hi, AOA. This is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.